This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, maybe we should uh, get started. And uh, as the sign says, welcome to Napa and welcome to our annual uh, transmit update uh, meeting. Uh, we're in the Napa Valley. It's a beautiful day, and uh, I think we have pretty good signs, so, and we're all alive, so what, what more can we ask for? Um, we, uh, we had some personnel changes, as, uh, as you see people when they come and present. Uh, a bit of musical chairs, the same people, but in different positions. Uh, Chris Fries is now uh, interim chief of the transplant uh, service, and... Uh, Dr. Roberts uh, um, is currently uh, uh, interim uh, chair of the Department of Surgery, and Dr. Asher stepped down, and now she's president of the Transplantation Society, uh, which is important in playing an important a role in uh, specially developing countries. In fact, this week she spent uh, several days in, uh, in, in, in Iran, and uh, the previous years, of course, Deb Aidi. Uh, became the medical director of the uh, of the transplant service. Um, you know these presentations. Uh, of course, we tailor them for our community, and you know very frequently when people ask me what wh- what's your recipe for success, and I say, well, maybe first and foremost is our referring community, nephrologists and other health- healthcare personnel, uh, because they are engaged. We have a close relationship. And through meetings like this, uh, we lay the foundation of how best to follow up, to provide care for our patients and follow them up. Uh, but the reach of these uh, uh, presentation can be <laughs> pretty sobering. Uh, this past year, I was in China, having, uh, was having dinner with a number of uh, transplant surgeons. And one of the uh, young transplant uh, surgeons said uh, she downloads all the presentations from, uh, from our meetings, both the kidney and the liver, which takes place in the fall. And this is her uh, bedtime reading. She goes uh, over the presentation and so on. And so it, it, it does have a, a wide reach. And in fact, if you go to the website, and maybe at the end of the meeting we'll give you the website, they are on the UC Transplant and also YouTube. Um, <laughs> but some, some of the presentation... Uh, get close to 100,000 hits. Uh, and so we, every year, of course, we take care into putting together a program that primarily meets your needs. Uh, so it's very important when you, get your, when you go in and uh, uh, get your CME credits uh, to let us know what are the needs that we need to address and maybe what are the topics and in fact, last year, several of the topics that were suggested by some of you, we incorporated them <coughs> in the program. So anyway, without uh, much more delay, uh, our uh, first speaker is Chris Fries, our interim boss. And uh, as uh, we've done every year, he will present uh, the state of transplantation at UCSF, as well as our outcome data, and also give you an update of whatever new initiative we have in place. Chris? Well, thank you very much, Flavio. Um, 
I was uh, thinking this morning, the first time I attended this meeting back when I was a fellow, probably about 1994, 95, and gave a talk, I think, about pancreas transplant at that point, and now to stand up here on this stage as the uh, interim chief is, is a little bit surreal, to say the least, but uh, I can say over all these years, having attended this meeting, Flava, you do a wonderful job, and we really thank you for your leadership in putting on this meeting Every year, I think it's really become sort of the gold standard for the way these types of meetings should be run. So, And he doesn't do it alone, of course. Um, Peggy Millar, you hear her name every year. Peggy, thank you again for helping to put this uh, together. It's always, always a great show, and I think it's because of the detail and effort you put into the whole thing. And, of course, there's many other... Uh, helpers that uh, she has with her. I won't, uh, won't run through the whole list, but uh, thanks again. So speaking of thank yous, um, this meeting would be very difficult to put on without the support of our sponsors, and they're shown here. Uh, many of them have uh, tables in the hallway, and if you can spend some time just to stop by and say hi and to say thank you, uh, I'm sure they'd appreciate it. We certainly appreciate their support, and Hopefully they can continue to make this a successful meeting in the, in the future. So there have been changes, as Dr. Vincenti mentioned, but a lot of things uh, stay the same. Um, the surgeons in our group have been a very stable crowd. It's probably unheard of in transplantation to have a, a group of surgeons that can stay together for so long, but we've literally been the, the same group of eight surgeons for 16 years. Um, we do have one addition last year, Dr. Garrett Roll, uh, who trained under us, and we all, of course, have trained under Dr. Asher. So a very stable uh, crew of surgeons. Our nephrology uh, group has um, uh, brought in several new people over the last few years. Their names are shown here. Uh, and as Flavio mentioned, Deb Aidy has become the medical director. And then in our peds nephrology group, again, a, a nice uh, a stable of people, many of whom have trained uh, in the UCSF program. Well, the operation of getting your patients to transplant is a complicated one, as I'll talk about in more detail in my later presentation, but it takes really a lot of people to make this work. And uh, we on the physician side, of course, are very indebted to our nurse support and AA support and pharmacy support and social worker support. And given that our program is so large and seems to grow a little bit every year, we, we keep asking for more help from our Medical Center, and uh, fortunately we've been granted some more help to hire some new deceased donor coordinators. Um, Susan Stritzel and Anthony Swanner will be joining our group. And then the other folks that you probably recognize, uh, Annette Clem, Nancy Fong Hong, Regina Riangal, and uh, Maria Tong still uh, really hold down the fort in terms of getting patients ready for transplant. On the front end, we have a, a core team of Sandra Del Grosso, who uh, unfortunately is retiring, um, but Stephanie Pingle will continue to be there, and we've hired uh, Prince uh, Tenoso to also help with our intake. And we have a stable crew of living donor coordinators who've been working hard to push that side of our practice. And uh, importantly, we've tried to expand on our outreach efforts. Um, we uh, try and open up new clinics to be closer to your patients, and we now have a, a good group of four dedicated outreach coordinators to help make that happen. 
In terms of our post-transplant uh, cares, of course, when you do a lot of transplants, you need a lot of help on the back end as well. And uh, we have uh, uh, four excellent NPs on the adult side, uh, two in the pediatric side, as well as a complement of nurse practitioners for our inpatient service. They cover the service at nighttime as well, so um, very important part of our team. And then a dedicated nurse practitioner for our pancreas program. And, of course, management of all these people is very important. I've uh, learned a lot in the, what is it, nine months I've been at the interim chief uh, position, but certainly um, the management folks that we have in our group are absolutely vital to keeping things running smoothly. And Carolyn Light is our uh, director, with uh, Jen Kearney as our assistant director. Other key components of our program, the social work staff, um, and we've tried to uh, add to that staff as well, including Sandy Weinberg, uh, who does an excellent job as our independent living donor advocate. And then, of course, financial counselors, which make sure the patients understand what this all costs. So as Flavio mentioned, um, I've stepped in as uh, interim uh, chief at the request of John Roberts, who stepped in as interim chair of the Department of Surgery when uh, Dr. Asher uh, decided to step down. She, uh, in addition to being the president of the International Society, is also still a very active transplant surgeon. And in some weird twist on an organizational chart, I'm somehow her boss, which I don't think I can really wrap my arms around. But uh, nonetheless, uh, she's still very active uh, as one of our transplant surgeons. Um, as I mentioned, we've expanded our deceased donor coordinators to help uh, take care of the large number of patients we're trying to prepare for transplant and making efforts to expand our outreach clinics. And I'd just like to say again a, a special thank you to Sandy. Is she here? I didn't see her. She's not here. Well, Sandy, I remember when she started uh, 19 years ago now at UCSF, and she's been um, just an, an incredible um, uh, person in our program really uh, um, is one of the few fir first faces and voices that patients hear as they enter our programs, and she's responsible for the initial evaluation phase and has really done a, an absolutely wonderful job, and I'm sure our patients are going to miss her, we're going to miss her, but uh, we wish her well as she uh, moves on after 19 years of service. So I do want to summarize uh, some of the um, status of our program currently and some of the newer things we're working on. One of the great things about being involved with this program is not only do we handle large volumes with excellent outcomes, but we always have new and exciting ideas to, to always try and do things a little bit better. And I think that's what stimulates each of us to come into work each day with a, with a little bit more enthusiasm. And there's no shortage of business. Um, we thank you for that, for the referrals. Um, in 2017, we're predicted to have a, a remarkable number of 2,100 referrals. And simple math would tell you that's over five a day, counting Saturdays and Sundays. Really quite remarkable. And I can assure you we're set up to handle that. We have, a, as I showed you, a large team, dedicated team. And if we don't have enough folks, the medical center has been good about giving us support. So. Keep the referrals coming. I think we can handle them. And we do have several outreach locations uh, currently. We're always discussing whether we should branch out into more uh, to make it more convenient for patients to access our care. 
but these are the scattered locations we have, both adult and on the pediatric side. All of the pediatric uh, locations do handle post-operative care as well. The adult locations are primarily for um, uh, pre-transplant evaluation clinics. So I mentioned the large size of our program. Um, as I'm sure you've heard before and may realize, we have the largest waiting list in the country. Um, for years, it's been over 5,000 patients, with the next closest list being around 2,500 to 3,000. So clearly a very, very large program. Each year, with all those evaluations, we end up putting onto the list new patients, anywhere between 800 and 1,000 patients, and usually 1,000 patients will be removed from the list, either hopefully because of transplant or because they've gone to another center or gotten too ill. So at the end of a year, this uh, last time we looked at this, we were at around 4,800. Actually, officially, I think we're at 4,900 now, but this is the first period of time when we've been able to get our list under 5,000. And... Uh, as mentioned, our ideal uh, method for lowering the number of patients on wait list is to do transplants. And you can see here our numbers over the last three years, 2017 annualized to about 320 transplants. Our living donor program continues to be very robust, although we haven't quite hit the numbers we had in 2015, but I'm optimistic that we will. And our deceased donor uh, transplants have actually been growing a little bit each year. This year we're up about 27% compared to last year, so that's exciting. Probably most exciting is maintaining those large volumes but keeping excellent results. And the uh, SRTR, which is responsible for handling um, transplant outcomes and reporting it to the public, has a beta site where they've uh, begun reporting sort of a five-bar system, if you will, with five bars being the best uh, in terms of transplant outcome. And if you go to the site and search punch in kidney, UCSF will pop up as the highest volume center with a five-star rating. So again, we're, we're very proud that we can handle a large number of patients and continue to, to deliver excellent results. Uh, similarly, the kidney pancreas uh, transplant program, while not nearly as large a volume, also has a five-star rating. So the bad news in having a large list and in being in an area where many centers have large lists is weightless mortality is very high, much higher than we would like to see. As I mentioned, we list about 900 patients a year. When we last looked at the mortality on our list, it was clear that about one, only one in five of those patients that we list will stay healthy enough to receive a deceased donor, and the odds are even slimmer for patients who have diabetes. So as I'll talk about later, programs to um, uh, you know, really get patients to think about as options to get a kidney more quickly are really an important part of our practice. And certainly living donation would be the best uh, option for all patients that are listed as an example of a way to get a kidney more quickly. So what about some new uh, things that are happening in our program? This isn't completely new, the idea of uh, the kidney allocation system. We've spent many talks at this meeting uh, debating and 
reviewing what the new kidney allocation system will look like. And we've now had it in place for uh, nearly three years and have really learned a lot uh, during that time. Um, one thing that's very clear is that uh, we're transplanting a different set of patients these days than we used to transplant. And just to give you an example, the highly sensitized patient shown in the um, this pointer here, shown on the right here, patients with CPRA of 100%, transplanting those before the new allocation system was a rare event. But now that they're offered kidneys throughout the country, or at least an attempt is made to match a kidney throughout the country, we've, we've really increased the number of highly sensitized patients that were transplanted. And this has helped not only the 100% CPRA patients, but also the 99 and 95 to 98. So what we've learned is we have to have those patients ready. And these were patients before that would sit on the list for sometimes 15, 20 years with nothing happening. And we now have a targeted approach to have those patients worked up and ready for transplant because likely they will be getting an organ, certainly much more likely than in the past. And if you look at the um, transplant rate for patients who have had more than five years of dialysis, uh, we're doing more patients uh, in that category. And again, I think a lot of that's explained by these highly sensitized patients who have been sitting on the list for a long time. The new allocation system was also designed to allocate kidneys that look more like the patients that are receiving them. So in a sense, older kidneys to a little bit older patients. And if you look at the outcome of that, the age difference between donors and recipients, clearly that goal has been achieved with the new allocation system. So in light of um, the changes in where these organs are going, we still and, and drops in numbers of deceased donor organs in general in the country, we still push living donation very hard and uh, tell patients that it's their best option more than ever, especially given the mortality uh, rate on the wait list. And one thing that I'll talk about a little bit later that we're very excited about is developing a program for patients and their potential donors known as the Donor Champion Program, where we try and educate them on how to best get the word out to their social network uh, to try and find a suitable donor kidney. So, of course, the standard living donor transplant requires that the donor and recipient are blood type compatible, cross-match compatible, and ideally a similar size and close to the same age. Um, the problem is if you have incompatibility of any of those uh, features, a standard transplant may not be able to take place. And that's where kidney exchanges have really come in to help uh, get more patients transplanted. And there's the simple exchanges where you have one donor-recipient pair just crossed to each other. But more commonly nowadays, we're seeing these more complex donor chains, sometimes started by a non-directed donor, someone who calls our center and says they're interested in donating a kidney to wherever we think it would be best used. And these chains will happen, kidneys moved across the country, and eventually end, hopefully, with another patient transplanted off the deceased donor list uh, to end the chain. So this has been a very important uh, reason for growth of our living donor program. We participate in the National Kidney Registry, which is the largest exchange program in the country. The only other one that really comes close is the UNOS uh, um, uh, controlled uh, paired kidney exchange program. We also have an internal software uh, program that allows us to find internal 
match candidates based on just patients within our center. And then we are also cooperating with another center in town, Cal Pacific, to see if we can set up these chains uh, locally within the Bay Area. Since June of 2009, we've been able to complete 156 of these paired kidney exchanges, most of them through the National Kidney Registry, but some of them through our internal exchanges and then working with our partner um, for a cross-town exchange. Areas where the exchange program could be improved or expanded would be to now introduce compatible pairs into the mix. And this may be, for instance, an uh, older donor to a younger recipient, they're blood group compatible, they're cross-match compatible, but the age differential we could maybe do better with if they entered into an exchange program. So that's something we're very interested in looking into. Um, the National Kidney Registry has an advanced donation program where somebody who knows uh, a loved one is going to need a kidney in the future could donate a kidney now. So let's say it's somebody who's in their 60s and wants to donate before they may, may not be a candidate to donate, they can actually do that. And their um, planned recipient could then get a voucher to receive a kidney later on in time when they actually needed one. So that's an interesting program. And then we're looking into the possibility of having a deceased donor actually serve as the first donor to start a chain of transplants. And that's something that's being done cooperatively between the three transplant centers in the Bay Area. Now, some of you uh, know that we are a leader in transplantation of patients with HIV under the um, initial research work of Dr. Peter Stock, and he's been a very strong advocate of expanding um, transplantation of patients with HIV. And more recently, the HOPE Act, which was passed as a, uh, a federal law to allow for organ recovery from donors with HIV, uh, has been adopted and approved, and the local laws have been changed to allow these transplants to happen. So we're ready to go with this program and have some patients consented to receive organs from HIV-positive donors, whether they're living donors in the case of liver, we're not doing living donor HIV in the case of kidney, or deceased donors for either organ. Well, I want to just say a thank you to our immunogenetics lab, which is an absolutely vital component uh, in making transplants happen, especially in the middle of the night. As you might imagine, if we're sharing organs across the country more commonly, it means we have to figure out cross-match results much more frequently than in the past. And in the past, it was a physical cross-match requiring a tech to come into the lab, well, Dr. Raja, and he's going to talk more about this later, has developed a very solid program, I think, of virtual cross-matching where we can use previously determined uh, antibodies in a given recipient, knowing what the uh, HLA antigens are in a given donor, and do a cross-match virtually so we can accept the organs with confidence, knowing that a physical cross-match would be negative. So I think that's really helped to boost a lot of transplants that in the past would have either been difficult to do a physical cross-match or would have had a false positive, which is a problem with physical cross-matches when you do highly sensitized patients. So I think in part the excellent work of the lab has resulted in our increased donation, uh, uh, deceased donor transplant rate. We're also embarking on a program to help uh, our living kidney donors get through the experience hopefully with a lot less pain or a lot less side effects from different pain medications. 
as you know, the opioid epidemic and doing perioperative pain control has become a very hot topic uh, in the world of uh, medicine. We've uh, come up with a plan through our, with, with our anesthesia colleagues to identify potential kidney donors who might be at a higher risk of having pain problems post-operatively, direct them into a pain management clinic ahead of time so they can have their expectations about what things will be like afterwards uh, clearly defined and a pain management plan can be formulated. Um, we also have the ability of the pain management team to help out for patients post-op if they have problems. And we're actually trying some new techniques in the operating room with various uh, nerve blocks that will hopefully eliminate the need for IV pain medication post-operatively. So again, a real uh, effort to try and have the donors have a more um, easy experience with the donation process. And lastly, we're very interested in trying to serve more people who live further and further away, and telehealth seems to be a natural solution uh, for that, and UCSF is certainly very interested in telehealth-type programs. Um, one area that seems like an obvious fit is for the living donors who are required to give us some follow-up at six months, one year, and two years, rather than having them come all the way up to the transplant center arranging for some sort of telehealth connection to see how they're doing. And then certain uh, portions of evaluation of new patients, for instance, a psychiatric uh, evaluation of, of donors, uh, which is needed in some cases, could potentially be done via telehealth and save the donor having to make a special trip for that particular visit. So Flavio mentioned uh, the talks uh, in the past that have now been coalesced into a, a website, and we could certainly get you a copy of this. You don't have to write it down quickly from the slide, uh, or email uh, Peggy Millar. She'll let you know the link uh, to these talks. But it's nice because you can look back. I think there's 115 of these talks uh, collected from over the years, and there's some liver ones in there too if you want to branch out and see another organ. Um, but they're all available online, and you can see how we've all aged over the years reviewing the, the, the talks. So that's all I had to say to update. Uh, again, it's an honor to serve in this position in the interim role, and uh, I look forward to meeting more of you and uh, really trying to help make our program meet the needs of, of you and your patients. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.